certainly trust that you have a, a meaningful experience in worshiping the Lord together. And again, thank you to our guests for being with us today. We're so grateful to have you. It's an honor to have you here. We do have some guest cards uh, in the back of the pews there. Uh, if this is your first time worshiping with us, or maybe your second, and you haven't filled out one of those cards, it's just our way of getting to know you better and have a record of your visit with us today. So if you don't mind filling that out, and you can leave it on the table after in the vestibule. It'll be fine after the service. We love to be able to follow up with people when we can to thank them for taking time to come and to worship with us and be a part of our fellowship. This morning, I'm going to ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, the lesson we're looking at today, certainly a passage of scripture that, that is so familiar to everybody from the time we were in, in children's church, if you will. And I was thinking about uh, uh, Amelia and, and Nicole being here. They, they grew up through our, through our children's church through the years and, and on into the youth ministry. And it's great to see them back here with us. But but even that from a time early time in our lives, we've heard about this wonderful parable that we'll be looking at today. And, and leading up to this, Jesus's ministry, his earthly ministry, is beginning to take a, a transitional turn, if you will. Uh, as we move through these particular chapters, Jesus up to this point has primarily been ministering in the, in the rural, uh, mostly rural areas of Galilee, uh, distance from Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And, and there he's been ministering along this, the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Capernaum um, and, and primarily there. He has made pilgrimages to Jerusalem as a good practicing Jew uh, and his disciples. And now, as we saw beginning back in chapter 10 and even before that, Jesus is his ministry is beginning to change from a so much public teaching ministry about the kingdom of God and and working miracles he he's beginning to to dispatch his followers to go on his behalf out as messengers first his disciples two by two went out to to proclaim the the kingdom of God to work miracles of healing and and casting out demons as, as spokesmen for the Lord Jesus Christ and then, as we saw in the last time we were looking here at chapter 10, Jesus in verse 17 sent out 70 of his committed followers, not his apostles, but followers that were committed to Christ. And he sends them out two by two out into the region to do very much the same thing, to, to, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God and to also announce that the king is here and, and then to work miracles in the midst of people as a way to authenticate the message that they're teaching. So with this, Jesus is now beginning, and we'll see this as we progress through the Gospel of Luke. I entitled the series that I've been preaching for eons now, uh, simply follow me, follow me, because that was a call of Christ to those who would eventually commit themselves to Christ by faith. Jesus says, come and follow me. And ladies and gentlemen, I got news for you. His call is still the same. If you're not a Christian, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ and received his forgiveness by repenting of your sins and, 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 and placing your faith fully in Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross where he shed his blood to pay the price for your sins. If you've not given your life to Christ, 
then you've not heard this call. But I promise you, the minute that you are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that you know that you are a sinner, and you know that the penalty of sin, the Bible says in Romans 6, uh, 23, is eternal death, separation from God, then I assure you that when you experience that call of the Lord, convicting you of your sins and placing in your heart a desire to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the first thing you'll hear from the Lord is come and follow me. He doesn't just stamp you once you're saved, saved, you get baptized, and then you go live your life any way you want to. He, he claims you as one of his followers. And so we're all called to follow Christ and in different ways in our lives. He leads us. We follow his lead. And so they, Jesus is now issuing the call out there, and, and he's turning his, his attention now, is, is now beginning to, to turn towards the city of Jerusalem. And in the upcoming months, the Son of God, Messiah of the world, is going to be making his trek towards Jerusalem. He knows this is not going to be a pleasant pilgrimage. This is not going to be a leisure trip. This is not going to be an occasion where he'll, he'll be celebrated. Oh, no. He realizes that, that he is on the last leg of his, or the last phase of his earthly ministry. And as he moves towards Jerusalem, he knows he's moving towards the cross. And he realizes what that represents to him. His death, his burial, and resurrection. And so all along, we have people approaching Christ. Some of them trying to test him, uh, and others are, are, are wanting to hear him. Some come with desperate needs, like we saw Jairus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, desperately coming to Christ to heal his daughter who was dying. And, 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 and so people come with all kinds of needs. But it's interesting today, we're going to be focusing on a certain lawyer. Now, I know the first thing that comes in your mind are all those blasted television commercials that you hear now. Every other commercial, I believe, is some lawyer wanting you to sue somebody so they can get your money. Go figure. But anyway, I, now listen, if you're a lawyer or you come from a, a legal background, I apologize. I don't mean to offend anybody personally. We're not talking about that kind of lawyer. Okay, in the scriptures, some translations would use the term scribe and the scribes were those uh, who were learned in the scriptures and in the law. They were professionals. They, they knew they, they were scholars in, in the law. And so the, your translation may say a scribe, uh, but my uh, a translation, a new King James Version uh, has it as a lawyer. And so. I want you to see with me here as we begin in chapter 10, verse 25, a gifted leader searching for assurance of eternal life. I don't believe this lawyer is coming to try to trip Jesus up. I don't think he's coming to make a show of himself to his religious elite peers. I believe he's actually coming to use Jesus somehow to give him assurance of eternal life. And he begins with the right understanding. I, I want you to understand that. I'm not attempting to villainize this lawyer, make him a bad guy right from the get-go, because actually you'll see he, he's coming initially from a right understanding. And I'll explain. In, in verse 25, it says, And behold, 
and this is to get your attention as if, okay, after everything else that has happened with descending out of the 70, then all of a sudden we're into a new experience. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, so he's drawing attention, and he tested him. In other words, he's wanting Jesus to, 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 to affirm for him that he has eternal life. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and so he begins with the right understanding. He begins with the right perspective on life, demonstrated by the question that he poses to Jesus. This man believes that when you die, there's life after death. Judaism teaches that. So as a good Jew, he believed in eternal life. So the question really is not, do you live after you die? Now, I realize there are groups in our culture and has been down through the years, down through the ages. There have been groups such as the humanist and the evolutionist and, and, and the naturalist and the annihilationist who, who would try to propagate Satan's very effective lie, his deadly lie to the present world. Satan wants people to believe that, hey, you don't, there's no life after you die. There's no existence after you die. Don't worry about it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Go for the gusto. There are no consequences to how you live your life now. And so, you know, there are those in the world in which we live that have that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die idea. But that's not the perspective that this man has. He's a, a good, grounded Jew who knows the Mosaic law. He studied the law. And, and, and he knows that his people down through the ages have always believed that when you die, your soul lives on. Now, if you are faithful to follow God and your faith in God and you trust in God as a Jew and keeping the law, they believe, then you'll live in the kingdom of God and, and enjoy the eternal blessings of God. Of course, if you are not. If you're guilty of sin, then, of course, you do have you live after after death. But but after that, you live in punishment and, and agony. And we, so so he believed that his people believed in life after death. In fact, I'd like to take you back to a passage that I think is so significant because in what is some scholars say is chronologically the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, even Job. You, everybody knows Job. We talk about the patience of Job and what a man of faith that Job was. And we know the sufferings of Job. And we know that Job was in a very bad place when, when we, Satan was testing him, testing his faith in God. And, and so when everything had been stripped from Job, his, his wealth and his, his prosperity and his family and, and his prominence, and, and he was destitute and, and and, and, and sores all over his body. I mean, you know, the only logical conclusion, well, his wife suggested that. She just said, well, honey, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. You know, that, that's the blessing. You don't see that written in a Father's Day card too often. But anyway, the fact is, Job was a man that lived with the blessed hope that even when we die, we shall live. Listen to what Job said in, in Job chapter 19. 
in verse 25. He says, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another how my heart yearns within me. Job believed that when you died, you lived on after there was life after death. Not only Job, but King David. You remember that, that tragic episode in King David's life when he had committed adultery and disobeyed God and, and, and was in rebellion at that point in his personal life. And, and the woman that he had the affair with, the Bathsheba, uh, was pregnant and had a baby. And, and there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when that baby was born, and, and, you know, because the prophet Nathan had let David know that, listen, God knows what you did. You're trying to hide your sin, but you're guilty. And as a result, here's this child that David dearly loved because he loved Bathsheba. And this baby is dying. And David is grieving and he's he's not eating and he's and, and is distraught and he's praying and asking God to spare this baby's life. And finally, as you would read in first Samuel or second Samuel 12, the baby dies. And David all of a sudden just gets up, takes a bath, cleans himself and he starts eating. The baby's dead. And they and, and his servants would say, well, sire, we don't understand. And David said something very profound there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. He says, no, he says, the baby can't come back to me, but I can and will one day go to be with my son, the baby. David knew that, yeah, death separates for a while, but even beyond death, there is life. The prophet Daniel, that great man of God who God had given great visions of the future. There in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, Daniel, Daniel said, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. Daniel says, listen, when God's people pass in, in death, listen, it's not over because God is going to enable his people to live in his kingdom for all of eternity. And Daniel was a firm believer of that. He went on in chapter 12 and verse 2 to say, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see, Daniel believed that when people died, some would go and have eternal life in the presence of the Lord. But those who rebelled against God, who just did not have faith in God, enemies of God, would, they would live on for sure for eternity, but in shame and in contempt. So now let's go back to this lawyer. He's coming to the Lord, testing him and saying, you know, well, teacher, you know, what shall I do to have eternal life? And he's wanted to use Jesus to shore up his own understanding that he's going to live on forever. I believe we have a, young, a man that, that despite his great training, despite his position of, of uh, respect among, in the Jewish community as one of the uh, elites, I believe you're looking at a man who is hauntingly struggling with some uncertainty. Even with all that he knows, 
And, and even with his rigorous religion of practicing, keeping the law, and being extremely legalistic, there was still that nagging, nagging uncertainty that caused him to publicly approach someone that he deep down felt had the answer. So he said, what, what do I need? What, in other words, if you rephrase the question, he might be saying, what's missing? Is there anything missing? In my mind, I think I got it all together. If anybody should go you know, into the kingdom of God, if anybody should have eternal life in the presence of God, surely us religious elite, the leaders of Judaism should be there. But you know, he's not the first and certainly not the last. You may recall in John chapter three, when a Pharisee, another religious leader, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the leaders of Judaism of that day, highly scholared and, and trained in, in the laws of Moses and, and practicing the law. His name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a prominent leader among the Jews and, and knew Judaism and the law and, and, and had a great reputation. And yet, you know, Nicodemus came at night searching for a very similar affirmation. When he, he approached Jesus and, and said, look, teacher, we know that you are sent from God. We, we see the miracles that you do. And, 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 and Nicodemus is saying, look, I, I, I just want some reassurance. Just tell me that that the way that I'm living my life, practicing the law and being rigorous in my, my religion, just, just tell me that this is good enough to get me into heaven. And you know what Jesus replied to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3? He says, listen, unless you are born from above, you won't see the kingdom of God. Now, this is brand new thinking. In other words, to, to Nicodemus, because Jesus is saying, unless you are born again, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born of the of water and the spirit. And Nicodemus is scratching his head. And he says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I've got to be you know, birthed by my mother again? Who's going to tell her? But the fact is, he, he couldn't grasp spiritually what Jesus was saying. Here's a man who understood the law. He was practicing the law. He was doing everything in terms of outward expressions of religion that should have given him confidence of eternal life. And yet deep down, he knew something was missing. A little later in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see another man who was very religious. Not only that, he was pretty rich, too. He was a, a wealthy ruler, if you will, in, in Luke 18, 18. And this this rich ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? Isn't that amazing? He's got all this money. And, and Jesus said, well, you know, what does the law said? And he starts naming off. You know, in fact, Jesus starts telling him the different laws. And he says, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. You know, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. You know, the, have no uh, uh, other gods before. And he's, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. And you remember how that conversation ended, too. It ended very sadly. Because, see, he was thinking that he had fulfilled all the law requirements that would have earned him eternal life. And, and Jesus said, well, that's good. That's good. You say you obeyed all the law? That, that's, that's great. Uh, there's only one thing missing. Sell all of your property. Give all of your money to the poor. Now, that's a strange question. Was Jesus saying you buy your way into heaven? No. 
No. Even though this man had confidence, uh, you know, misplaced confidence, that he had met all the requirements to get into heaven, he said, I've, I've obeyed all the laws. And that, you know, we think of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is thinking, you've obeyed many of them, but you haven't obeyed all of them. And I'll show you how. And that's when he told him, take all that you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And Jesus nailed him between the eyes. Because this man was committing idolatry. His belongings and his money was his idol. And when Jesus said, I want you to give it to the poor, the man walked away sadly because he could not fulfill that. And Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus was sad as well. So now, as we go back to the text here, I want you to see how Jesus is subtly bringing this lawyer to, to the failure of his legalistic thinking, while at the same time demonstrating that Jesus himself is committed to the law. Do you remember when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, I didn't come. Don't think that I came to destroy the law. No, no, no. I mean, after all, Jesus, God incarnate, he gave the law. He's not against the law. Jesus is simply saying, I've come to fulfill the law. So it's not Jesus is, is putting down the law. Jesus is confronting those like this lawyer who are putting their trust in their understanding of obeying the law and thinking that they can legalistically earn salvation. So let me take you back to the text in verse 26. I want you to see. Now, oftentimes you'll hear this message, you'll hear this passage talk, you'll hear it preached. You know, and some of you may have looked ahead and read ahead. The parable of the Good Samaritan. You're thinking, oh, that's, yeah, we need to hear about how we need to love our neighbor. And I appreciate the fact that we've got that theme woven into our responsive reading. And loving our neighbor is important, as you'll see. And, and, and being benevolent and being, you know, uh, kind and, and, and giving uh, and generous is good. Being benevolent is not a bad thing, folks. But this text is not a lesson about social ministry it's not telling you that if you want to get into heaven go out there and just find people that you can help or go out there and find somebody who's poor that you can you know help them to get some money or you know help them to pay their rent or help them get medical care all of that is good and well but it won't get you into heaven don't put your don't put your confidence and your trust in what you can do on your own. And that's where Jesus is trying to get this young or this lawyer. And so let's look at verse 26. He said to him, what's written in the law? What is your reading of it or your reciting of it? What's your understanding of the law? And so this lawyer is going to begin to recite what we would recognize as the Shema in Judaism, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Every good, faithful Jew, particularly the priests, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all, all of them, they would, they would just quote this over and over and over and over. And so naturally, that's where he goes. The lawyer answered and said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
That was tacked on to the Shema that came out of Leviticus 19.18, but that is important. In fact, what this young man has just quoted is, is extremely important. It's in, extremely important to Jesus. Because Christ said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, and then all the rabbinic traditions that came along. I mean, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders kept adding on and adding on. There were hundreds of laws by the time we get to the time of Christ. And somebody had the audacity to say, well, of all the commandments, which is the which, which one's the most important? Number one. And that's when Jesus said, just, just what this Shema says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark's gospel, all your strength. Now, you're probably thinking, well, you know, preacher, I'm not a Jew. <laughs> and so don't preach to me about this Shema and all the Old Testament stuff because I'm, I'm the new book, as one old fellow used to tell me. Preacher, I don't mind you preaching from the old book, but I'd rather you preach from the new book. The New Testament. Well, listen, we need both of them. You can't understand and appreciate the New Testament if you haven't read and studied the Old Testament because it builds on that. And so here's Jesus said the greatest commandment. Number one. Is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind. We could just stop right there. And I could challenge myself and I could challenge you to consider that. Do you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? What does that say? That says that the Lord is preeminent in my life. Above everything, above all the things I might possess, above all the relationships that I'm, I'm blessed to enjoy. Hey, listen, even above my own comfort and security, my love must be first and foremost. We were talking about in our CGG lesson this morning and then the previous lesson talking about in the book of Hebrews. And it talks about that hall of faith, all the champions of the faith. Men and women who love God supremely and they, they were willing to die for the cause of Christ and, and for God. They suffered tremendously because, and listen, people still are. More, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ are still suffering. Not because they're bad people. Some of them are sitting in prisons, rotten. Their possessions have been given away or sold away and their, their families sold into slavery. Not because they're criminals, not because they're bad people, because they believe in the Lord, because they love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and mind. It comes with a price. And so this lawyer is reciting to Jesus his understanding of what the law says to get to eternal life, to have eternal life. And the, and the Lord is cleverly setting the stage. This, this, this man doesn't realize he's standing and talking to God incarnate. Jesus is, hey, listen, Jesus created this fellow. 
If, if you're a believer in, in what the scripture says in, in Psalm 139, where it talks about how God shaped and fashioned and covered us in our mother's womb. Let me tell you something. He knew you before you were even born. He knew your name before your mother even knew your name. He knew the purpose that he had. So you see this man that's standing before Jesus. Jesus reading him like a book. He knows what's missing. And Jesus is setting him up for what I think is going to be the lawyer's greatest spiritual dilemma. And so let's let's look what 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 the Lord is saying there in those verses in, in verse 28. After he, the lawyer has recited these popular, well-known commandments and, and, and Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. That's what you want to hear. When you come into the to the teacher, the rabbi and, and, and all you're wanting is his check mark along with everybody else is on your credentials. You know, the lawyer's probably gotten the Pharisees to check off on it and the priests to check off on it and, and his scribe buddies to check off on it. And he's just wanted one more check. This, this very popular and knowledgeable and inspiring rabbi that nobody can figure out by the name of Jesus that has the attention of the multitudes of the people. I, if I can just get maybe him to check off too, then I'm on my way. And Jesus says, hey, you've answered rightly. Yeah. You want to know that you have eternal life? Then he says, you, you've given the right answer, but you notice that Jesus didn't stop right there. He drops the bomb. Whether the man, the lawyer knows it or not, Jesus has just put a time bomb in his soul. Jesus said, do this. And you will live. You see, Paul, the apostle, made it clear. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. The law has a purpose. Paul says the law of, of God is given not to save you. You see, Jesus knew. Unfortunately, this man and all of the Jewish leaders, the legalistic you know, elite of Judaism hadn't got the, the, the memo. Jesus knew. Yeah, if, if you can fulfill and keep all the commandments and never break one, if, if you can live your life without committing one sin, then you're in. You have met God's righteous and holy standards. That's why Jesus simply said to the lawyer, do this and live. And underneath that, Jesus is thinking, but you can't. You won't because your ancestors didn't and nobody since Adam has done it. Everybody is under the curse of sin and under the requirements of God and listen, it's not a matter of breaking the big sins, the big commandments. Folks, all it takes is one. The scripture teaches all it takes is one, one sin, one infraction of any of the law of God. And that's it. Jesus is trying to lead him to a logical or a spiritually logical conclusion. 
And, and Jesus is not done with him. You see, the Lord mercifully exposes the lawyer to his self-deception. He allows the man to kind of set the stage, if you will. Because the man's not done yet. The lawyer's not done. He, he, what Jesus just said, do this and live, that just bounced off the top of his head like a weak BB. He's, he, Jesus said, do this and live. In his mind, he's thinking, yeah, I, I got this. You're right. I've been, I've been living perfectly. I can accomplish all the laws of God with perfection. No. So to just to justify himself, just to secure, so because he's got an attention, he's got the audience watching now. They're watching closely to see what's transpired. So he's wanting to say, "Oh, okay, okay, yeah, uh, I, I've done all these commandments. I'm, I'm good in God's eyes." And, and he says, uh, "Just to, just to make sure, Jesus, when you you know you said I should love God with all my heart, strength, mind, everything, soul." And, and love my neighbor. Uh, just, just who is my neighbor? Won't you verify to the crowd that's listening? Because he's thinking Jesus is going to name off. You know, your neighbors are the uh, the Pharisees, and, and you need to love the scribes, and you need to love you know the uh, the uh, priest. And, you know, you know your crowd, those who are like you who also have this idea that they can fulfill the law of God. He says, so So he's thinking that Jesus is going to say, you know, the, the people that you already love, just keep loving them and you're good. You, you, Those are your neighbors. But Jesus doesn't follow suit. And this leads into this very important lesson that we have here given to us by Luke. When the lawyer asks the question in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? And let's begin reading in verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, and, and let me just stop there. <laughs> Did you notice that the lawyer didn't even bother saying, well, wait, let's just get back to that, that part about loving God. That, that's, that's really important. Uh, Am I really, truly loving God? Is there any possibility I'm missing something in loving God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Uh, yeah. No, you know why? Because in his deluded thinking, he thinks he's got that, that department covered. Don't even have to worry about loving God. I've got that covered. Let's, let's talk about this neighbor thing. Let's just verify for the crowd. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers it with this powerful and very popular Parable. In verse 30, Jesus answered and said, A certain man, we don't even have this is a parable, folks. So we're not talking about real life people, no identities here. These are types of people. He says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead you know the distance from jerusalem to jericho is really not that far but boy it's a it's a it's a climb or up or down because you drop you know several hundred feet in sea level going down this windy crooked craggy road that that you know you had to 
to traverse to get to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and, and in those curves were rock formations and there were caves. And if you're traveling alone, you know, it was a common thing. Highwaymen would be hiding in there. Robbers would be. And that's what happened with this man. He's on a dangerous road and he falls prey to these these heartless, you know, greedy robbers who not only take his belongings, but beat him half to death. Not only beat him half to death, he's laying there critically in critical condition. They stripped him of his clothes. It almost has some kind of preview of how the world would treat the Son of God when he came to offer his life for our sins. So, verse 31. You see the picture Jesus has painted there, answering the man's question about who's my neighbor. Now by chance, just by chance, a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him, saw who? The man who'd been beaten nearly to death, who was bleeding profusely and probably semi-conscious and alone, naked. And, 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 and I'm sure in the, in the lawyer's mind and all the religious people in the crowd, but as soon as Jesus said, and along came a priest, they're, they're probably thinking like I used to when I watched the, the Westerns, you know, uh, here comes a lone ranger. Of course, I was always looking for Tonto. But the fact is, here comes the rescuer. I mean, the, 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 the priest, he represents all that's good and all that's Judaism and all that's godly and, and compassionate. And, and what does the priest do? He's to get down on his knees with his first aid kit, begins to administer. What does it say? Jesus said he saw him. It wasn't like he just was in the bushes and didn't see him. He saw him. He's laying in the middle of the road, bleeding, groaning. And what did he do? And he passed by on the other side. Now, I don't know about you all. That upsets me. Now, I know it's a parable, but you know, I can't stand the thought of people walking past somebody that's been vic you know, uh, victimized and, and, and hurt and, and just pretending they don't even see them. As if like, oh, well, that's your problem. Okay, so that's the priest. And, and uh, okay, so all along in his mind, the lawyer's thinking, hmm, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something's wrong with this story. The, the priest should be helping him. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes into the tribe of Levi and he pulls out a Levite. You know, the ones who assisted the priest in the temple. They knew the law. They, they knew the rituals. They were, they were highly religious, highly respected. You know, here's another good religious person coming along, a Levite. And when he arrived at the place, oh, yeah, he got out his first aid kit. He gave him some food and some water, washed that. No. The second possible hope of rescue, it says he came and looked, at least when the Priest was walking by. He just kind of glanced up and said, ooh, I want to get close to that. <laughs> Might be some other robbers out here, you know. But, but when the Levite came, he's kind of curious like a lot of us, you know. You know, the, the thing that slows down traffic on the interstate so much is not the actual accident. It's y'all slowing down to 20 miles an hour and craning your neck so you can see all the details. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, for a fact, people are curious. So here's this Levite. He says he, he's got to look a little bit closer. Ooh, that is bad. That, that's nasty. Man, I can't touch him. You know, that would disqualify me ceremonially the whole bit. But but he passes by. 
Now, both of these leaders in Judaism have had a perfect opportunity to be a neighbor. Just when you think all hope is gone. My goodness, what's there to hope for? If the, the, if the cream of the crop of, of, of Judaism is going to pass by this man, who is there out there that could possibly come along? And this is where Jesus introduced. But a certain Samaritan. Don't forget, historically, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. To the Jews, a Samaritan, well, they called them dogs. They were the enemies. And Samaritans hated Jews. And the man that's on the, on the road beaten up and, and helpless, is, you know, the, the implication is he's a Jew. Because they're in Jewish territory. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. That's been missing from the formula so far, hasn't it? Not with the priest, not with the Levite, but he had compassion on him. Did it stop there? He could have just said, you know, oh, oh I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll pray for you, you know, and, and then go on. No, he, he has love for him. And let me tell you something. He demonstrates that love. And it says, and he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. Pouring on oil and wine that belonged to him. These are disinfectants and, and to keep the, the wounds from getting crusty and hard. And he set him on his own animal. So obviously this Samaritan is riding along. He gets out of his Cadillac and gets, puts the man in. Now he gets off of his donkey and he puts the man because he's got to get him back to help. And he's not going to make the man walk. Can't. So he's cleaned his wounds. He's put him on his donkey and he brought him to an inn. Now an inn is not so much like a Ramada Inn or, you know, a Hilton or like we're thinking about today. But it was a place that people would stop and rest along their journey. And at least it was some place that he could get some care. And, and in verse 34, it says that he took him to an inn and he took care of him. Do you, you see what's developing here? Now, the crowd that's listening, particularly the lawyer, they're Jewish. Their priest has already failed. Their Levite has failed. And this Samaritan that they hate with their guts anyway, because, you know, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan in their minds. But, but this Samaritan is doing the unthinkable to probably a descendant of Abraham. Not only does he bring him to the end, he's already bandaged him and he lets him ride on his donkey, but it says he spent the night taking care of him. He's a perfect stranger. And look at verse 35, because folks, what you see unfolding before you as Jesus is portraying what and who is a true neighbor is what we would call lavish, compassionate love. He's going way beyond what most people would expect a stranger to do. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, which, which is a substantial sum of money in that day. It would, and he gave it to the innkeeper. Folks, innkeepers sometimes had reputations of being shady. You could trust them. Some of them are crooks. This man's taking a chance with his money on a stranger. But Jesus is not finished. Just when you, I imagine some of the Jews in the crowd that thinking, I'd never do that. You know, the lawyer's probably thinking, I'd never do that. 
Jesus is not to. He gives the innkeeper two denarii. I gave, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever you more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. <laughs> the, 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 the audience is probably going out of their minds. They're saying, what? This Samaritan is, is expressing such unconditional, lavish compassion upon a stranger. He's basically giving the man a, a blank check. I wouldn't suggest you go to a, strang to, to a stranger innkeeper at the Ramada Inn or Holiday Inn or whatever and just say, here, I'm going to give you a blank check. You know, you cover my room expense. Yeah, right. He's saying, look, whatever it costs to help this man, when I come back, and he must have been a regular on the route, or the innkeeper would probably say, yeah, right, I'll see you again. He, he says, when I come back, I've got it covered. You see what's happening here? Because when Jesus gets to the end of the parable, he asks the question, so which of these three do you think was neighbor or was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves. The lawyer had already said, he had already incriminated himself. When Jesus asked him about the law, and he said, he's already said, oh yeah, yeah, I love the Lord my God with all my heart. And he's already lied right there because he's broken the commandment of God that said to the Jews all the way back in the Old Testament, you shall love and you shall take care of even a stranger. So he's already demonstrated he doesn't love God by disobeying God's command. But now, when Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think was truly a neighbor? You see, he's been convicted all through the story because he said, that's not me. That's not me. And yet he's already told the Lord, I've kept all the commandments, including I Love my neighbor as I love myself. He lied. Now, this is not a, a, a lesson that is intended to make you go out there and be some kind of super social worker. To go out there and look for every needy cause to, 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 to fulfill so that you can earn your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can never give enough. You can never do enough. But the point is, if you're... If your thinking is wrong, if, if your confidence is misplaced, if you're one of those people like so many in our society today, if you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Because I know God is good and he loves everybody. And, and I've been good. You know, I, I haven't killed anybody. I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't robbed anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I don't cheat on my taxes. I, you know, I don't cheat on my wife. You know, I'm, I'm good. I haven't done any of these. Hard... Yeah, I'm going to heaven because I've been, I've been good. I'm a good person. It's all works. Ah, ah, me, me. You see what? Let me tell you what. And I got to close. This is what the Lord Jesus is looking for. You see, everything the man's been saying up to this point, Byron, wrong answer. <laughs> but the man finally got it right when Jesus asked him, which of the three do you think is a neighbor to one fellow among the thieves? The man, the lawyer, by his own confession, he says, he who showed mercy on him. 
By his own words, he said that the priest is not a neighbor. The Levite's not a neighbor. And by the way, while you're dishing that out, I'm not a neighbor. He didn't say it, but he might as well have. Jesus was helping this young man to see it's impossible. It's impossible to please God by our works. Our actions, you cannot fulfill all the law. It's impossible. But take heart, folks. That's why Jesus came into the world. The response that Jesus was waiting from this man, and he waits from every person who is confronted with the reality of eternal life, is Jesus is wanting you to get to that point. You remember in the parable, Jesus taught about the this Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector in the, in the temple. They were praying and the publican was standing up there, puffed out in pride and said, oh, God, I'm so glad I'm not an extortion and adulterer. And like all these people, I'm so glad I'm not like this old tax collector here. I, I keep the law. I practice the law. I'm so faithful. Oh, God, you're so lucky to have me. And on the other side, here's the publican. He is so convicted in his sinfulness before the holiness of God. He can't even look up towards heaven. He's beaten on his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That was the response that Jesus was waiting to see in the lawyer. At that moment, at that pivotal moment, he should have fell on his knees before the Son of God because standing in front of him was God incarnate. Standing in front of him, he's asking about, what must I do to have eternal life? Listen, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He was standing and looking into the eyes of the very one who could give him eternal life. He was waiting for this man to come to the end of his rope and realize that his his hope was not in legalism. It wasn't in his religion. It wasn't in his his uh, his, his actions, his works. And if that man had fallen on his knees before the Son of God and he cried out like that that that. Uh, Publican did in the temple and started crying out to Jesus and said, oh, listen, master, I realize I cannot. I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. I am convicted of my sins and there's no way that I can fulfill the holy requirements of God. Guess what? He would have been on his way to heaven. Every one of us, every person, I don't care how prominent you are, how popular you are, rich you are, or how religious you are. Every single human being that ever wants to glimpse the glories of heaven must come to the end of themselves and recognize that just as the scripture says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you can't have a misguided notion that you can do it on your own. And you know, when the rich man came to Jesus and Jesus told him to sell all this stuff, Give it to the poor. Come and follow him. If that man had done that, he would have followed Christ right on into heaven. 
But you see, he was practicing idolatry and he couldn't. And it says that that man was very sad. He realized he just forfeited his hope for him. But but it wasn't just that he was very sad. In that passage, it says that Jesus was very sad. You see, when Jesus sees people who have misplaced confidence in things other than their faith in him, he realizes very sadly. They won't be with me in heaven. Do you think Jesus, you know, is vindictive and stands up in heaven and every person that that rejects him? He said, yeah, you'll get yours. Now I'm glad I didn't want you anyway. You're a rebel. No. I believe there's a deep sadness in the heart of God for every person that turns their back on Jesus or they put their confidence in anything other than the shed blood of the Son of God. I ask you today with all sincerity in my heart, have you gotten to the end of your rope spiritually? Have you come to the end of yourself at some point in your life where you realize that apart from Christ, there's no hope for you to see heaven? You'll never have eternal life. And you cry out with conviction in your heart and, and, and with seriousness and repentant of your sins and said, Lord Jesus, I know that you're the only way. Please come into my heart and save me. I put my faith and trust in you and I will follow you for the rest of my life. I trust that you have if you haven't. And if you have, I think you ought to celebrate that and demonstrate that by telling those who don't know how to get to heaven. Just how to get there. His name is Jesus. God bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that out of these timeless, powerful, inspiring words given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you reflect to us what is true. And Lord, you don't make us believe it, but you call us to believe it. And when we put our faith and our trust in your word and not in ourselves or not in religious systems or in the things of the world, but we wholeheartedly throw ourselves at your mercy, you always respond with compassionate, lavish love and receive us into you yourself, your kingdom. And we thank you. We thank you and praise you. I pray for anyone who has not come to that point of spiritual desperation and yet living a deluded life, thinking that somehow God's going to let them get into heaven and have eternal life simply because they're good. There's none good but God. Thank you, Father. Have your will in my heart and the hearts of every person here today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark, would you?